This podcast is a production of Journey, a church community inspiring people to live big. For more information, please visit cincyjourney.org. Good morning. Thank you, Daniel. Good morning, everybody. You can be seated. I didn't say that in time. Sorry. I would like to share this with you. Uh, for some people that are professionals, they stand up here and uh, the microphone and the lights and the crowd does not terrify them. For me, it's like jumping into a cold pool. So I want to take a minute here, get my bearings, and say welcome. My name is Brian. I'm a volunteer here at Journey. Uh, I am teaching here this week. This is uh, the third week of uh, our series that we're in the middle of that we're just calling Grind. We're talking about what to do with times of trial and trouble and difficulty and how to remain faithful in the midst of that. Um, I'm excited to be here. I would like to pray for all of us and maybe a little bit for myself uh, in this moment, and then we're going to jump in. Father God, thank you for... Thank you for the moments that have brought us here, moments of community, moments of worship, moments of music. God, we come to this moment, and this moment's about words. We open up your word, we open up scripture, we'll read some of that, and we'll talk through what it means, where it comes from, how it applies, but God, words are easy. It's easy to read, it's easy to hear, but God, the more important thing What I pray that you do in in my life and my heart and the lives and hearts that everybody gathered here is that you help us to, not just to hear, but to listen. That words like seeds would plant within us. That words would not just be words, but would be ideas, promises of hope, of encouragement, of direction. They would be reminders of things that we knew already but forgot. God, I pray that you through your Holy Spirit, inhabit this place and this time, our hearts and minds and thoughts. God, be with us this morning. In all this we pray, amen. So week one, uh, we introduced a really powerful metaphor that I just want to remind everybody about. If you weren't here, I think it's a useful thing to remember. We talked about coffee. And uh, I like coffee. I love the smell of coffee. Even when I was a kid, I loved the smell of coffee, even though I hated coffee. It wasn't until I was past college that I learned to actually like tasting it and drinking it, but I've always loved the smell of coffee, and we talked about this metaphor of how coffee, the beans are roasted and repaired and then ground, and it's the grinding of those beans that releases the aroma, and it's the grinding of those beans that release the flavor. And that there's something about that that's true in our lives, that when life grinds on us, that that starts to release what's within. And the powerful promise there is that if you are a believer, if you've allowed the Holy Spirit to work in your life, that we hope and pray that what will be revealed when life grinds on us is Jesus. That Jesus would be revealed as we're ground by life. I love that reminder. I've heard it said that character is what you do when nobody's looking. The problem, especially in the social media age, is that somebody is always looking. I would tweak that and say that character is what you do when your truest self is revealed, your truest instincts kicked in, and usually that's when you're under stress, when it's the grind of life, the trials, the struggles, the day-to-day blur, when you're tired at the end of your rope, the true you is revealed. And as believers, and disciples and followers, the positive hope of that, the positive aspect of that is that hopefully 
in those moments, it will not just be me that's revealed. It will not just be you or us, the church that's revealed, but that Jesus will be revealed. Last week, Joe pointed us toward this idea of contentment. And there's a spiritual side to this as well. When we have an eternal perspective and an awareness and appreciation for the amazing grace that God has shown for us, then we should allow ourselves to be moved to contentment. The big picture is important. And you're going to hear me talk about this big picture perspective all the time this morning. But the big picture is important to remember and remind ourselves that Jesus is enough. And more than enough, Jesus is hope and promise, and it's greater than any earthly thing. And so again, our response to this grind of life is a spiritual response. It takes a spiritual perspective to see our adversity as an opportunity for the Jesus inside of us to be revealed. There's that aroma. It takes a spiritual perspective to free ourselves from that yearning to escape. If you're like me, when those trials hit, there is a strong part of it that wants to be anywhere else. Make, make them go away. Make me go away. So somehow to escape. But the faithful spiritual response, even in the midst of those trials, is contentment with an eternal perspective because we know that something bigger is out there. And so today, the challenge in front of us, the topic in front of us is what to do trying to balance sorrow and joy. Maybe in your life you have sorrow, you open your eyes and look around in this world and we see great sorrow and yet we feel that we are called, like the spiritual response is to to, to express and experience joy, and we want to wrestle with that. The passage we have for us is a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. It's the second letter to Corinthians, chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. I think they'll be on the screen. You can follow along, but I just want to read through these and then dig into it. Paul writes, as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, for he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. I like this part so far, but we're going to keep reading. (laughs) We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, riots, In hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine, yet regarded as imposters, known, yet regarded as unknown, dying, and yet we live on, beaten, and yet not killed, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, and yet possessing everything. Well, that's a real recruiting poster. Hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, riots. What do we do with that? So first, I just want to break down Paul's writing a little bit and provide some context. This passage comes from a larger passage in this letter where Paul is defending his ministry and he's defending himself. 
What's happened is that competing teachers have come to the church in Corinth, and they've stirred up all kind of trouble. And Paul is trying to stake a claim that he is a true, pure apostle and a true, pure teacher. And he highlights through this larger passage his motivations and his history. And here he's describing the great sacrifices that he has made and the suffering he's endured in order to teach and preach what he has taught and preached to this point. And remember, this is Paul's story overall. This is central to his character and his life and writing. This summer, we walked through the letter, Paul's letter to the Philippians, and we remember, reminded ourselves all the time that he was writing that from prison. Paul in prison was trying to teach and encourage everyone. Paul here is highlighting his suffering not for gain, not for sympathy, but to demonstrate his dedication and the depths to which he would go to teach and preach. And so for us, when we read through this, what do we do with this? Well, first, I love that Paul's always pointing this to Jesus. Like those first two weeks of this series, fundamentally, this is a spiritual battle. It's about a spiritual perspective. To Paul, those sufferings, beatings, imprisonment, and all of that, even those, which seem giant in my mind, those were minor trials. Because Paul had this big picture, eternal perspective, and he knew that God and the person of Jesus and the hope of forgiveness and redemption, that was enormous compared to the trials of just this life. It's just one life. The, the trials that Paul faced were minor to him compared to the eternal. So that's the first lesson is just to remind ourselves that an eternal perspective is important. And you could echo this every week we stand up here. An eternal perspective is important. Paul sees that everything that happens to him, whether it's good or bad, it's within the, his context as service, servant of Jesus. Paul is on a mission, and so then are we. With this perspective, our trials are less about us, less about all those painful questions like, why is this happening to me, or this isn't fair, or on and on and on. Our trials aren't about us, but they're about how can God be revealed through this? That is a spiritual battle in your life, in my life, in our lives. And an eternal spiritual perspective is what we're called to. Number two, in this passage, is taken as granted, suffering is expected. We may not be imprisoned or beaten or have our character questioned, but if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, then it is naive and it's foolish to expect your life to be easier. Now, no doubt, there is a promise of healing, of comfort and care through the Holy Spirit But so often, I think well-meaning believers and well-meaning churches seem to give off the vibe that faith is going to make your life easier. I think Paul actually would argue the opposite. That a faithfully lived life is more difficult. It's more difficult to pursue righteousness and holiness. It's more difficult to open your eyes and see the world around you and respond to those opportunities to preach, teach, share, care for those things around you. That will bring you trouble. A faithful life is likely more difficult, and we should expect that. But again, that big picture, that big timeline is in play. All of this is done within the mindset of eternity. Often in churches, you'll hear faith, Christian faith, discipleship, described as religion versus relationship with Jesus. 
And this, I think, is the, the achingly seductive draw of religion. And if that like, dichotomy doesn't make sense to you, then I want to talk through this just a little bit. This generic abstract idea of religion is this promise that if I just do this and this and this, then my life will be easier and I will be right with God. And so much of this is embedded into our cultural expectations of church. If I'm basically a good person and I go to church, maybe volunteer a little bit, maybe give a little money and so on and on and on and on, then my life will be easier and I will be made right with God. Hashtag blessed. Instagram it. But that's religion. This idea that there's a formula in play, that there's a checklist to follow and a predictable result. The reality is that we are called into relationship with Jesus, and relationship with Jesus sounds really nice and fuzzy until you realize that relationships are much less predictable. Jesus doesn't care about your ability to complete a checklist. Jesus cares about your heart, your very soul, the things that motivate you, your faith, your trust. Like, in what do you really trust Your family, your friends, your relationships, your savings account, your power and authority at work? Or do you trust in the promise and the power of God's grace? Do you trust that you have been forgiven? You. You have been forgiven. And likewise, you should be quick to forgive others. So no, faithful relationship but not religion will not protect you from suffering. So I would like to quote one of the great classics of our time, The Princess Bride. I don't know if you've seen The Princess Bride. The laughter indicates maybe you have. If you haven't, go watch it. Great. And there's even some theology buried in there. Because Wesley, I don't think he's Wesley here. I think he's the, the man in black, or what he was called. The man in black says to Princess Buttercup, life is pain, Buttercup. And anybody who tells you otherwise is selling something. I suspect Paul would agree with that. But for Paul, it wasn't the pain that mattered so much as how God could be glorified through that pain. So the third thing I want us to talk through as we look at this passage is to focus on just a few words here at the tail end. He's talking through all these things where they were seemingly contradictions, like they were known but regarded as unknown and dying, and yet we live on, beaten but we weren't killed. But then this phrase just jumps out at us today, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And I want us just to dwell there for a few moments. And I want us just to accept that joy and sorrow or joy and sadness, these really pure, abstract emotions, they can exist simultaneously, and they can exist in tension simultaneously. I tried to come up with a great catchphrase for this bullet point, but I never got there. So it's joy and sadness exist simultaneously and in tension. There you go. Memorize that. I think we need to wrestle with how we should feel about things as a spiritual response. Our emotions are raw and they're varied 
I like the thinking about joy and sadness because you can distill so many things down to that. We've got all kinds of words where we might try to describe our various emotions across the continuum, but we can distill things down to joy and sadness or joy and sorrow. And I think so much of our human nature draws us to treat them like an either-or proposition, like you're either joyful or you're sad, or something is either worthy of being joyful about or it should lead you to sadness. But I think that in a spiritual lens, both joy and sorrow are good, mature, faithful responses to this world. Now, we can hop all over biblical narratives for some examples, but I want to just take a couple really simple ones. In Paul's letter to Philippians, which we read this summer together, Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always. And Paul, as he was writing or dictating this letter, he repeats himself. He says, this is so important. It's so critical. It's so simple. It's so straightforward. I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And I think we, as believers, as churches in America, we are tempted to land on this side of equation. That somehow faithfulness means embracing, rejoicing, to the point that it almost becomes kitschy. Like, everything is okay. We're always so blessed. And I I wrestle with that. I imagine some folks in this room wrestle with that. Many of us have walked into rooms that just felt too, too faithful, right? Too cheery. For me, it was always Christian bookstores. I'm sure that's a little bit of blasphemy, so please forgive me. But I usually try to avoid them, to be honest, and thanks to Amazon now, uh, bookstores are dying, so that's not probably good, but... I usually try to avoid Christian bookstores. All the kitschy home decor, it was just too much. I like the idea, the core idea of surrounding ourselves with Scripture and learning it and memorizing it and reminding ourselves of it. But if we're going to do that and do that well, we need to have a holistic view of Scripture. And I hope somebody can prove me wrong later today and send me a picture, but I have never, ever seen, rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger on a plaque. So yes, we need to rejoice in the Lord and rejoice in the Lord always. Paul directs us that, but there is another side to that coin that we don't want to ignore. Now, it seems to be a thing when you become a teenager, like things that were about two decades before you were cool. So I'm going to date myself. It depends on where you fall on the age continuum, but I was in high school in the late 80s and early 90s, so that meant the 60s were hip and cool. And I loved 60s music, and I loved when I encountered a song I want played for you. If you know it, all you need to hear is a few bars. If you don't know it, you have no idea what I'm talking about. So we're going to listen to just the first few words. Oh, okay, or not. I'll just read them to you. Oh, okay. So this is a song called Turn, Turn, Turn by the Birds. I think it dates from 1965 or so. Um, I have no idea. I've re- refused to go look. I don't want to know. I don't know if the birds were believers or just anarchists or stoners or maybe you could be all those things. I don't know. And I don't know. I don't know if I want to know who they are, but they helped generations of people 
memorize a remarkably nuanced portion of Scripture, and I'm grateful to them for that. I've always wondered how many people know this song and can sing along to it and have no idea that this is almost a word-for-word quote of this passage in Ecclesiastes. So we turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There's a time for everything and a season for activity under the heavens. There's a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time to plant and a time to uproot. There's a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Turn, turn, turn. As believers, I think we need to look at both sides of these equations, and we need to find those appropriate times. And so I think for us, it means spiritual maturity draws us, calls us to this reality that we can hold both joy and sorrow at the same time. And I want to provide some really big macro statistics and a story to tell you to demonstrate how I think this might be true. Um, I I want to talk through some statistics that are quoted. This is very official. I'm not sure where I landed here, but from the 2015 United Nations Millennium Development Goals Report. And uh, these are bullet point highlights from the introduction, and these are straight quotes out of this UN report. Extreme poverty has declined significantly over the last two decades. In 1990, nearly half of the population in the developing world lived on less than $1.25 a day, and that proportion dropped to 14% in 2015. Globally, the number of people living in extreme poverty has declined by more than half, falling from 1.9 billion in 1990 to 836 million in 2015. And most progress has occurred since 2000. The number of people in the working middle class living on more than $4 a day has almost tripled between 1991 and 2015. This group now makes up half the workforce in the developing regions, up from just 18% in 1991. And the proportion of undernourished people in the developing regions has fallen by almost half since 1990, from 23% in 1990 through 1992 to 12.9% in 2014 through 2016. Those bullet points represent incredible progress. That's a huge development, positive development for humankind. It is incredibly good news. Try to cross-reference those numbers for a little bit further back. The estimates are that nearly 50% of the global population was considered undernourished 50 or so years ago. That number is down to 13% now. This is a huge reason to rejoice. These are families and generations and communities with radically different lives than just a few decades ago. We should rejoice in that. But 13% of our globe still represents about 900 million people. 
To give a small sense of scale, the U.S. population is about 325 million right now. So it's about three United States worth of people who don't have enough calories to survive. It is reasonable, I would argue even faithful, (laughs) to look at that macro trend and rejoice. And it is reasonable to also consider these 900 million people who are hungry right now and just be devastatingly sad. Both emotions, both visceral responses, both feelings, both thoughts are faithful and true. It's a mark of maturity, of spiritual maturity, that we can both rejoice and mourn at the same time. And this is our calling. Again, Paul would point us to the eternal when he calls us to rejoice. For him, the rejoicing was all about that eternal hope, the eventuality, final justice, experiencing God's grace for all time. We rejoice for that. But for today, today may very well be challenging. It's challenging for these 900 people who are hungry. It's challenging for all those who still have not been helped out of poverty. And then there's us. My life, your life, and this grind. What do we call this grind in a tough world? I hope that we are not being imprisoned or beaten. I hope that we are not going to bed hungry every night. But I expect in your life and in mine there is trouble. There might be sleepless nights, like Paul talks about. There might be things that worry us. There might be things that are deeply troubling. I think not so much about big traumatic events when I think about the grind, but I think about this daily wear and tear, how work days evaporate and weeks just disappear, how projects come and go, priorities shift. Sometimes it seems like we can never get something right. Or my family, it's the exhausting daily routine of kids. How Each day is a fight just to bring energy in the morning, and then you get home and bring energy tonight, and you just want to go to bed and get it over with. In the midst of that grind, there's often little thought about enjoying it or ensuring that I or my family get the most out of it or opening my eyes and looking beyond myself for reaching out to others, to sympathize, to help, to do anything other than my own self-centered you know, priority right then. How do we remain faithful in that grind? I I think first, the framework that we just walked through gets us there. It's part of the way. It's that eternal perspective, and it expects suffering. It shouldn't lead you to an existential crisis of why is my life troubling at times? Prepare for it. You need to have a bastion in your heart and soul that won't be shaken when that happens. I think we can practice holding joy and sorrow at the same time, even in those moments of weariness in the day-to-day. If you find yourself there struggling, I want to talk through just a couple bullet points of suggestions. They're echoes and restatements of what I have said already. The first is keep that perspective. There's a big picture in play. Oh, I'm sorry, I said that. First, keep perspective. What I mean by that is, and I struggle with this, you know, when I've been waking up in the middle of the night by my child when work isn't going well, all these things. Like, there's this emotional, like, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just me, but I, I feel like that's the weight of the world. Like, my life is so unfair and difficult and hard. 
And so I like, maybe not memorizing, but at least remembering Paul's passage. Paul's standard for troubling life is beatings, riots, and imprisonment. So losing 20 minutes of sleep when my kid woke up in the middle of the night, and then I went back to sleep in my warm, cozy bed, it is a trouble, but let's be clear to myself and to one another about where it fits on that trouble. And if you're having sleepless nights, I don't mean to mock that. Sleepless nights, are, they can be difficult and wear on you. But we need to keep the, maybe the proper perspective of what our trials and our troubles are. We want to rejoice in that big picture. I've talked about that, right? For Paul, our lifetime was short. And eternity was forever. I listened to a pastor speaking about this, and he was kind of vamping on this idea. Like, it's just a lifetime. It's just a lifetime of trouble. It's just a lifetime of beatings and imprisonments. It's just a lifetime. It's a short period of time because eternity is forever. And, you know, life has that weird, almost miraculous thing that it seems like our lives last forever and yet not at all, right? So I think we have to wrestle with that. It's just a lifetime. And last bullet is I think you can practice this. In those midst of, I think, in the midst of those trials and troubles, we can practice that spiritual discipline of holding both things as true. We can mourn, we can have sorrow, we can have sadness, we can experience that exasperation, whatever it is in our lives. But we can also rejoice. Maybe the rejoicing is that our troubles are here and not here. Maybe we're rejoicing that there's a big picture instead of just today. We can rejoice in all kinds of hope and promise from Scripture. And hopefully we can rejoice because we're a part of a community. One of the beautiful benefits of community is that all of our lives and stories are all over that map. And some of us are mourning right now. Some of us are sorrowful. Some of us are weary with trial right now. And that's okay. And we will mourn with you. We will sit with you. But some of us are rejoicing. Life is great. Whatever. It's new. It's exciting. Something good. Whatever it is. And the beauty of community is that we can enjoy all of that together. My mourning doesn't keep you from rejoicing. And I hope I can rejoice with you even as I mourn. And you're rejoicing shouldn't keep you from sitting and mourning with me. We can hold sorrow and joy in the same hand. That's a faithful response to the grind. And then we circle back. I don't even think I asked them to quote this, but the very first few verses that we read today, you have to put yourself in Paul's mind. He's getting ready to write about all this stuff, trying to stake this claim of how much he'd suffered. He's getting ready to go through this list, but that, he doesn't start there. He starts with, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. And I believe that that was true then, and I believe that is true today. From a few bullet points in a UN report to all kinds of reasons that I believe that now is a time of God's favor. I encourage you to dwell on that, to think about this, that this week. I want to pray for us as we close. I want Daniel to come up and begin play with us and, and share a song with us as we close out. Father God, thank you for the moments here where we can
listen to scripture. We can talk through what it means and how it applies. God, I believe, help us to believe that now is a time of your favor. Because of that favor, God, we can rejoice. But help us not to be so callous, so just reactionary that we turn to rejoice to everything. But we refuse to open our eyes and see sorrow around us. God, help us not to panic when that sorrow ends up on our doorstep. God, help us to pursue a mature spiritual life where we can rejoice and we can be sorrowful at the same time. God, help us to be the community that binds one another together on both of those extremes. We share our joy and we share our troubles. God, help us, despite wherever we are, whatever, whatever those troubles are that are in our lives, to remember the big picture of hope. God, we're told that if we confess, you're faithful and just. To us, our brokenness, our stubbornness, our exasperation, all of that is covered by the promise of your redeeming grace. God, help us to trust in that. Help us to trust in that so that we can see a big picture. God, thank you for these moments, these words. We pray all this in Jesus' name.